All right, guys. So welcome to another episode of the Imperfectly Perfect podcast. And today we've got an inspirational guy, such a legend. Um, first of all, I'll say I'm honored to have you on as a guest. Now, before I talk about who it is, I will tell you a little bit about um, who this who this person is, their career and all the success they've achieved before we get into the story like I normally do. So he's a proud First Nations Aboriginal man born in Cowra, raised in Wagga, New South Wales, Australia, played in the National Rugby League for South Sydney Rabbitohs, Penrith Panthers and Canterbury Bulldogs before switching to professional boxing in 2009. He's a two times WBF World Junior Welterweight Champion and recently won the WBC Asia Continental title. Although forging a successful professional coaching career, he's battled the majority of his life with suicidal ideation and bipolar disorder. After a suicide attempt in 2012, he felt his purpose was to help people who struggle with mental illness. Through customized workshops, he talks of dealing with adversity, struggles, resilience, addiction, connection, emotional well-being, and healing trauma in schools, communities, correctional services, sporting clubs, and workplaces. So guys, I would like to introduce Joe Williams too. How are you going, mate? I'm doing well, brother. How are you? I'm, I'm amazing. And like I just said then, I'm honoured. I know you're a busy guy, and I know we're, we're in circumstances where we're obviously in isolation at the moment, but I'm, I'm totally honoured to get you on board. I mean, I've seen some of the stuff that you've done in this space. I'm kind of just just kind of new in the mental health sector space, and it's a, it's a such a passion of mine because I lost a mate to suicide. So to hear your story and how you've come through adversity and what you do and help other people is just inspirational, mate. Yeah, it's um, you know, you 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 look back as a kid, right, and you're like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, yeah. and everything I wanted to be was a footy player, and you know, I, I thought that you know that was my journey and so forth. If you, if you sat back and asked me 30 years ago, do you think you'll ever be a mental health speaker and travel around the world inspiring people talking about prevention of suicide? I'd be like, what? No way in the world would I do that, you know? So it's just amazing how you sit back and you follow the path really and where where you end up, where, where, where it leads you to and, you know, I'm a, I don't push my belief onto anyone, but I'm a, I'm a massive believer that, that everything happens for a reason mm. at the exact point in your life that's supposed to happen. Um, and, you know, it's all sort of drawn us to this point tonight, um, you know, and, and I'm lucky enough to be able to, to, to get out to communities and, and essentially share stories. Yeah. Uh, and what that looks like and what that means, I guess we'll delve into a little bit later, but people think that, I just go out and I tell my story, you know, and you know, I've been doing this for six years now, but um, it's not, whilst it's my story that I guess people connect to and helps people to relate in certain ways, but it's the other stories that I tell that has been the biggest, most influential moments in my healing journey. Yeah. yeah. So as, as it goes, um, so I touched on a little bit there about, about your story. Can we take it back from the beginning? I like to, as I say, when people are in the public eye and they've got this public persona that people think they know them, I like to unravel all that and go back to the beginning and, and just what makes you tick and 
where this sense of you had this NRL career, you had everything that you wanted, money. And as we always see, when people project this kind of perception or judgment on people that do from the outward look like they've got everything, when did it kind of start unraveling in your mindset for you with kind of self-hate? And, and I know that's what you've touched upon in your book. You know, um, for me and my stories, it's a little bit different. Um, I, I struggle with this stuff for, for a large majority of my life. Mm. Um, and how the story goes, you know, I, 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 I relate back to two really significant things happened to me at the age of 13. At the age of 13, I had up to five NRL clubs, National Rugby League clubs, um, knocking on, on mum and dad's door um, to try and sign me. As a, as, a, as a young kid, you know, showed some ability as a, as a young footy player. And, and for me, I was lucky that that's all, everything I wanted to be. Everything I wanted to be was like the guys playing footy on TV, you know. So can I do everything I possibly could to be that? Hmm. Um, my dad played in the NRL, which was the Winfield Cup back then. Um, how's that a national sport named after a cigarette company, right? Um, how far we've come. Um, but, you know, I, I, I look at... Everything that I wanted to be was a rugby league player. I showed some ability in that. Um, I had all these NRL clubs trying to trying to sign me as a young fella. And, you know, out of all the clubs that come and knocked on mum and dad's door, it was the conversation that changed. Uh, and and mum and dad said to every club that knocked on the door, we don't care about footy. You know, we don't care about what you can do for this kid as a rugby league player. What we care about is his education. Now, being a young Aboriginal boy at the time, Aboriginal family. Um, you know, it's well, it's well documented that, that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander or First Nation people of this country, uh, our, our education rates, our numeracy and literacy are lower than, um, you know, non-Indigenous people and, and you know, the, the, the national average. So mum and dad changed the conversation around, not about footy, you know, they're like, because dad played in the NRL. So dad dad was like, you know, it can be all over in a heartbeat. So we want to make sure that this kid gets a good, a good education because you get a good education, you're, you're going to get a good job. You get a good job, you, you, you get more money. You get more money, you can provide for your family. Mm-hmm. And again, looking at the, um, the, the rates with First Nation people, again, well below the poverty line uh, across, across the country, um, we knew that being able to provide for families was one of the most important things and, and, and to break a cycle. So um, that, that first nego- negotiation in contracts wasn't about footy, it was about schooling. So the club would give our boy the best education getting um, and, and through that, as a 13-year-old kid, I saw my first scholarship contract that paid for my entire schooling, uh, which, you know, was far greater than any gift that I could ever get because, you know, a good education has enabled me to, to string a few words together, to be able to um, be the author of, of not only my own autobiography, but, but contributed to multiple books um, and, you know, you know, hold, hold a sentence down, you know, like I'm, I'm again, uh, I'm, I'm thankful, so thankful that, that I was educated well um, and mum and dad put that in my first contract and, you know, I talk about the two things that happened as a 13-year-old that was signing that contract. But the other thing that happened as a young person and knowing the, the research now around head trauma 
around concussions and um, you know the, the the impact of the brain that you know contact sport has. I had a fairly severe concussion at a young age, and which I don't know if you've had a concussion, but anyone who've had a concussion would be able to relate to this. Uh, on the back of my first concussion, it started a dialogue in my head that put on a hell of a lot of self-doubt. Now, when you have a concussion, it second guesses and questions everything. It's like somebody else is sitting inside your head talking to you. Mm-hmm. Now, for me, it wasn't just about the conversation that was happening in my head. That conversation was extremely negative and it started to plant thoughts, ideas and plans of suicide. So for me, I've had this inner dialogue, this conversation, which I say is like a voice, mm-hmm. like a physical person sitting inside my head that has told me and, and plotted and planned uh, my, my suicide every single day since I was the age of, of about 13. So every, every single day, thoughts, ideas, plans of suicide, no matter what I'm doing, no matter where I'm going, you know, I can have this, it's a thought process, right? But I call it like a voice, okay? But I haven't, I'm not diagnosed with schizophrenia, so for me, it's not a physical voice. Um, but it's like, I say this to anyone, you've got a dialogue that's inside your head. Everyone's got a dialogue that's inside their head that tells them they're hungry, that tells them they're late, that tells them they look good in the mirror. You know, it's just that the dialogue inside my head was extremely negative and second-guessed, questioned and doubted every move, decision, conversation, everything that I had and told me to end my life. And that has happened every day still to this day for a massive proportion of my life, as I said, a young teenager. Um, Now, early days, I didn't know what it was. I, I, I didn't know. I just thought everyone went through it. But for me as well, at that age, you can, you can imagine young fellow coming, you know, going, going, through, um, going through school, just signed an NRL contract as a 13-year-old kid, you know, year seven at school, uh, year eight, year nine, you know, the, you're starting to, to get some, some attention around, you know, the media, around all sorts of things. But also, if I've signed a contract at that age, there's every chance that I could, I could play footy all right. So at a young age, a very young age, I was playing in the men's competition. So from the age of 13, 14, 15 year old, I was playing against men on the weekend. I wasn't playing against kids my own age. Yeah. So I went from under 13s, playing against 13 year old kids. And then when I was supposed to be under 14s, I was playing in the under 18s competition. And then coming off the bench, playing in the first grade competition against men every weekend. Now, with that, obviously comes the old initiation test of if he's good enough to be out here, he's old enough to be out here, let's see if he's tough enough to be out here. So rugby league 20 odd years ago was very different to what it is now, as far as, you know, rugby league now is a lot faster and more athletic and, 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 you know, fitter, faster, stronger. But back then it was, it was fairly reckless and, you know, you, if you got hit off the ball and you got hit high and you got hit late. And being a young kid, you know, it's again, it's the old initiation test, as I said. So I copped all sorts of late shots, high shots, head shots, where constantly this rattling around of my brain was happening and was building further and further on the, on the negative dialogue that was happening inside my head. So for me, that just spiralled out of control. Now, 
as young teenagers do, the only way I found at the time to silence what was going on inside my head was the old bottle, you know. So for me, um, it wasn't just about being a young fella trying to sneak on, you know, a couple of drinks of a weekend. For me, I was I was absolutely obliterating myself out of out of control, um, trying to silence what was happening inside my head. So for me, I didn't drink because I liked the taste of it, because I liked the way it made me feel. I drank to absolutely smash myself out of reality because it was the only thing that silenced what was happening inside my head. Yeah. Now, again, 15, 16-year-old, um, getting some attention with, you know, you know, the, the, the local profile starting to build a bit, talking about the NRL, talking about all these sorts of things. Um, again, you know, ego gets involved and um, 16, 17-year-old, time to move to Sydney. Now, Sydney is like all the bright lights get turned on at once, you know. I was I was living in Wagga at the time, so it's a small town. Everyone knew who I was, so I, I couldn't sort of go out and uh, openly do some of the things that, you know, young fellas get, in, get involved in, you know, because everyone knew who I was because of the footy and the media and, and so forth. So um, when I went to Sydney, it was like I was anonymous and these clubs don't close. So 18-year-old, man, I'm, I'm out there drinking as much as I can. With the drinking and the bright lights of Sydney also came recreational drugs. So I would drink as much as I possibly could till I'd pass out and then I'd take enough drugs to kill a small elephant just to keep going. You know, and I'd party, you know, for, for, for days. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm, I'm fast-forwarding through a little bit, um, but, but, but at that point, you know, around, you know, 18-year-old, uh, I come to, uh, as a young 20-year-old, um, I, I went originally down to the Roosters, but then I, I made my debut for the South Sydney Rabbitohs. Um, and again, it was like all the, all the lights turned on at once. You know, I, would, I, was, I was the star of the show. Um, and I was playing as a young 20-year-old. Uh, I was having some success on the field. I signed a new contract. With that comes money, comes exposure, comes profile. Um, again, the ego was just, and me was out of control. But, but, but it wasn't about drinking as much as I could to get drunk, as I said. It was about silencing everything that was happening inside my head. You know, a lot of people don't realise. Um, I got a I got a Facebook um, message sent to me today with a screenshot of what a guy put on a, a it was a South Sydney fans page, and he was like, "Has anyone ever heard from Joe Williams? You know, Joe Williams had so much promise, but I heard that he had some mental health issues, um, and you know, it was, it was one of those things at the time." Um, I got to the point where. My life was was extremely up and down. You know, there was the highs of playing first grade rugby league and the media and everything that comes with that. And then I would smash back down into this crater of self-loathing and pity. And then I'd play good footy again so that I'd come up. And then I'd smash back down again. So my life was extremely sporadic and inconsistent um and again i just thought it was just i was a kid down on his luck with this sort of stuff you know um but but for me 
the drinking and drug taking, it started to take over. Mm-hmm. And it, I got to a point where I looked at myself and said, I don't want to be this. You know, everything I wanted to be since I was a kid was a, was a, was a first grade footballer. Now I was doing that, but I was, I was slowly watching it slip from my grasp because of the stuff I was doing off the field. Yeah. You know, so I, I made some decisions that, uh, that if I'm going to improve my life, the first thing that, that, that I needed to do, because everything that was happening that was negative in my life, there was one common denominator. That common denominator was alcohol. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it just turned me into someone I didn't want to be. Now, it didn't turn me into a violent person. It didn't turn me into anything like that. It turned me, you know, I was, I was a happy drunk. I, I, again, it, it, was, it gave me that, that false, uh, false profile of who I thought I was. Now, if I was in second grade playing football, going out and getting on the drink and getting on the drugs... Would height would put me up on that high level again, where you know I was I was the, you know thought I was the best dancer in the club, thought I was the you know the main man, um, and again like you, you know what comes on the on the other sides of 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 drinking and drug benders for days, you know you, you I, I found myself in, in in the room not wanting to come out for days, you know it was one of those things. So I I decided to clean my life up a bit around that and it, it, I knew that, that alcohol was a massive problem in my life and I knew that drugs were a big problem in my life but if I didn't drink then I wouldn't take drugs. Um, so I, I, I initially started and you know I, I got some help and, and it was a good friend of mine um, introduced me to Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous and, and I went into the rooms of AA and NA and, and, and I started the journey of, of being sober and I'm lucky to sit here um, and, and chat to you almost 15 years without a single drop of alcohol. Um, you know, drugs hasn't been as long as that, but still a number of years. Um, but if I didn't get off the drink and the drugs, mate, I'd, I'd be dead or locked up. You know, that wasn't the... So, so for me, um, giving away that stuff was great, but what giving away alcohol and drugs did, what I was using for so long was alcohol and drugs to turn down the noise inside my head take away alcohol and drugs, the noise gets turned back up again, you know? So um, that's when I started to have a real look at, you know, what it was that I go through and a, and a conversation, um, you know, just after my career finished with some, with some professionals, I was diagnosed with, with bipolar disorder. And again, looking back at my career, my career was extremely up and down. It's because my life was extremely up and down, you know, the relationship breakdowns and then get back together and then playing great footy and then smashing down and playing bad footy. Um, you know, it was the inconsistencies of life that, that again, that a chemical imbalance of what bipolar disorder is um, thrust me into that lifestyle. Um, now, I, won't, I, I don't ever point blame to anything or anyone around that because, you know, it, it, it's the journey that was. Um, and I'm, I'm thankful to now be, you know, clean and sober and... Um, what I did was when I gave away alcohol and drugs, also lost interest in footy uh, because it was, again, I gave away alcohol and drugs. Now, the only thing I had in common with my teammates was playing footy and partying. Now, I wasn't partying anymore and I wasn't enjoying my footy anymore. So I walked away from the NRL at the end of the 2008 season um, and I walked into a boxing gym. Now, 
the people who heard and saw that I walked into a boxing gym probably laughed at me a little bit because as a rugby league player, I wasn't the toughest man alive. Um, you know, as a rugby league player, I didn't like getting dirty on the, on the, on the worst of days, you know. So, um, but, but, but going into a boxing gym didn't teach me how to fight physically or fight people. Going into a, into a boxing gym taught me how to fight mentally um, because, you know, the more you're working on the bag and the more you're working on the pads and you've got someone constantly in your ear saying, come on, Joey, just a little bit longer, just a little bit harder, just a little bit further. What that did was it started to build this mental resilience inside my head that would counteract the negative voice that was inside my head. So every time I'd step inside the ropes, not only did I have the negative thought inside my head, but I had another bloke on the other side of the ring trying to knock my teeth out. Right, So every time that I got inside the ring, I had to bite down on my mouthpiece and really fight. Now, not only fight physically, but fight mentally. And the harder I worked physically and the harder I be, the fitter I became in that boxing space. And, and let's not forget, as a rugby league player, I wasn't a real fit guy because I was naturally, I had, I, you know, I was naturally gifted with some, with some fairly athletic ability. So boxing, I was always behind the eight ball because I had to work hard to catch up on experience. Uh, boxing taught me so much about me. You know, when I searched deep inside myself as a rugby league player, I didn't like the person I found because it was a scared little boy who liked to run and hide when things got tough. As a boxer, when I searched deep inside myself in the ring, when I searched deep inside myself still to this day, I've still got the skills to be able to bite down and fight back in the most, you know, horrendous wars physically, but also mentally inside my head. It helped me build a resilience outside the ring for everything that was trying to take me out mentally. Wow. I was going to ask you before that, with obviously this all started when you was 13. And I always say, because when I went through my adversity and, other people I've spoke to was there any times but I, I did notice that you said you thought it was your normal was there any times when people started noticing and asking if you was okay or did you sometimes I know you were saying that you thought it was your normal so you may not have but were there times when you thought this might not be normal and try and try and put it out to anyone it wasn't until I was I was a young adult you know, until, you know, you started to look at sports psychology and, 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 and that sort of stuff. Like when people are talking, you know, you know, that's, that's not actually the norm, yeah. you know, and, and, and again, that, but, but I was in a time when I, I was a bit of a liability it's, as it was. I was fighting to hold my spot. So I didn't want the coach to think I was a liability. So I didn't, I didn't come out and talk about it. No way, because mental health, then you've got to understand, this is back in, you know, 2006, 2007, where for me it was in the National Rugby League, a sport that's, uh, that, that has a bit of a, a uh, you know, a, a drinking culture with, with professional men's sport. Um, it was odd for me to give up the drink. And then if I come out and say, hey, I've got voices inside my head trying to tell me to kill myself, you know, I just wasn't ready to take that risk at the time. You know, should I have done it? Yeah, 100% I should have done it because I knew that the minute I started to get help, the minute I started to, 
talk about what it was that I was going through mentally and emotionally was the day I started to heal. Yeah, because sometimes you obviously see these days in, in the newspapers a lot more sports players that were very big in the, in the 90s and early 2000s and now coming out and they're getting rehab and they're getting help for depression and anxiety and things like this. So it's obviously apparent that back in those days it wasn't something it was almost taboo to talk about. But I'll pose another question to you as well. Like you, you have a look at that that we're talking about that you know these players in the in the late nineties and the early two thousands um, that are on the other side of their career now. You know, for a, a good decade or even or even longer. Again, all the research around impact and injury of the brain causes you know these these heightened moods, these excessive behaviors, you know, um, you know, so we, have you seen the film concussion with Will Smith? It talks about, it talks about an illness, a brain, a brain disease called chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which, which is more or less, um, traumatic injury of the brain, which, which causes a, uh, I guess in layman's terms, a protein to build on the brain, which the brain thinks it's trying to heal itself. But whilst it's got this protein or this protective layer, the messaging struggles to get through, right? And then what happens then is that that's when, you know, the, the severe mental health issues type to start to creep in on the life because, you know, players are, uh, uh, you know, their memory's impacted. And, um, you know, again, you know, all around these excessive behaviours and, um, you know, the, the ups and downs of, of, of mania. And, you know, again, when we're talking about excessive behaviors, we're talking about uh, alcohol and drugs and stuff to hide away what's really happening inside our brain. So, um, you know, there's, there's more research and more understanding that's happening about that now and, and loads more players that are donating their, their brain for research, you know, um, you know, post death and that sort of stuff that the, the, the horrendous thing about CTE is that you can't it can't be diagnosed until post death. Yeah, um, and there's there's significant number of NFL players that that have, have, have gone down that path, and then uh, just recently as well, AFL greats, uh, NRL greats um, have had their brain looked at, which you know has shown up some signs of CTE. So. Um, it's a dangerous sport, but would I give it all back? No, no way. Mm. And then, you know, I, I, yeah, rugby league was tough and impacting on my brain, but then I get into boxing, you know, and boxing, uh, boxing, I, I, I say was massively con a massive contributor to building my strength and resilience. Yeah. Um, but it also has physically had some impairment and impact on you know the things that I that I go through from day to day now. You know you've been doing this for a while now. Six years you've been you've been doing your talks and you've been helping. I, I just want to take you back to when you finally got that help. So for anybody out there that maybe maybe thinking about it, when you got that help, did it feel? And I always ask this question: Did it feel like a weight off your shoulders that you were sharing it? And then how did people other masculine male dominated industry like yours that you've been in boxing and that how did they respond to it was it better than you thought because a lot more people put that pressure on themselves that they don't go through and tell anyone in the fear 
of judgment? What, what yeah, would you so, so look at you look at you know if my life was compartmentalized, I guess um, you look at rugby league career, boxing career, pre and post suicide attempt. So I had an attempt on my life in 2012, where there was some boxing fights pre that, and then there was some boxing fights post that. So um, again, um, it's been an ongoing journey with that. And and when we talk about getting help, you know, some of the biggest helps for me has been just talking about it. You know, just normalizing the conversation around uh, mental health and and uh, well-being um, as well, um, but but I, I've got to say for me and um, what I've noticed with with a lot of especially First Nation community, um, I'm an Aboriginal man, and I grew up knowing I was an Aboriginal man. But if you look at me, I was too black to be white and too white to be black. I didn't fit in either world. So there was a struggle with my identity around that as well. Um, and, and going through that process later in my life where there, there was a point where I grew up knowing that I was Aboriginal, but then I went to Sydney and in the big machine and the, uh, of the big machine of the, the NRL and, and, and the city itself, I moved away from what an Aboriginal boy from the bush looked like. Mm-hmm. Uh, mentally and emotionally and physically um, to this, again, this big machine that I was trying to fit into that didn't work for me. Uh, and then, you know, going through my identity issues later in my life and actually finding out that my identity is more about my behaviours in community rather than what I look like, um, you know, I started to heal. Um, and again, you're looking at, you know, whether it be skin colour, it's the impact of colonisation has had a massive impact on on First Nations people as uh, not only what we look like, but again, the, the the trauma impacted on our communities, which a lot of communities, you, you have a look at behaviours and whilst they may look like mental health behaviours, a lot of communities, it's the impact of trauma that we've been generationally inherited and the impact of again, you know, living in two worlds that we struggle to fit in, which is as First Nation people, we are extremely spiritual people. Uh, A a close elder of mine um, that I hold very dearly to my journey and my healing, he said to me, you're not mentally ill. I don't care what anyone says to you. You're not mentally ill. You're spiritually ill. And the minute you start to heal your spirit, will be the minute things come good for you. Mm-hmm. you know, for me, that, that, that's what's impacted and, and worked for me more than anything. And I love that. We spoke about, we spoke about that um, briefly the other day because the journey that I've been on myself, and, and this is what I mean, when we spoke about it a little bit, there's, there's a side that you can go down the, the medical professionals when it's medicated and, and things like that, which, which can work to an extent. But then the other side, like you say, the spiritual side, and the holistic approach where you actually get to the root of the problem. So for you to say that then it, it is something in that and the amount of people that I've spoken, it's not just in Australia, but in LA when I've been doing this campaign and everyone that's been through severe adversity 
has come to that similar notion of, of being told through an holistic approach that yes you can go down the route of doing medication there's nothing wrong with that but at the same time we need to fix the problem in here as well so well i, I don't openly say it mm. uh, i don't openly say it and publicly and I'm, I'm mindful of the words that i do say because different people are in different parts of their journey um but for me medication kept me alive yeah right without a doubt medication kept me alive and had a massive impact on on who i was in my healing but if I'm honest and brutally honest, medication was a Band-Aid mm. that fixed a sore, but it didn't heal the root problem, mm. right? So uh, I've now been, I haven't been medicated for a number of years as well now. Um, so for me, getting off medication and putting this different holistic healing approach in, I still very much have bipolar disorder, except for me, I, I, I had the notion of what would my ancestors have done when they didn't have chemists and doctors and, and you know, that Western approach of, of medication and pharmaceuticals, um, what they would have done, you know, but, it, but it, there, there's also the conversation around, you know, there wasn't mental illness uh, pre-colonization as well. That's another story, but, um, and there wasn't suicide pre-colonization as well. Um, but what, what I, what I got back to that story was, um, uh, my old people, the ancestors would have exercised a hell of a lot. Mm. They would have ate well. And when, you know, if, if they were in certain times of, you know, heightened, uh, well-being or, you know, what I would call mania, again which wouldn't have happened back then but what would they what would i i, I refer to what would the old people have done yeah they yeah. would have meditated and there's certain cultural practice around meditation you know ancient mindfulness practices that that date back thousands and thousands of years you know so um i i, I went on that that journey and it took me a while to come off medication and and initially it wasn't about hey, I want to get off medication. Initially, it was, I was talking with my doctor about it and it was, hey, I'm going to go on a different medication. Uh, he wanted to put me on a different medication. But then when I got off it completely, because I had to come down from one to get on another, when I got off it completely, I went, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm doing all right. Like, uh, but I'm going to make some promises to myself and to the people around me to keep an eye on me that if things start to head south, uh, I've got to go back to the doctor and start to get some medication again. But, but again, I, I, I made an effort, a concerted effort to put the real attention into, you know, the old practices, eating well, exercising, um, mindfulness, meditation, um, you know, these cultural practices that, that, that kept us well, you know, and again, I, I, I alerted to earlier, alluded to earlier stories mm. right now. What a lot of people don't realise is that in this story, story uh, in this country, First Nations people around our culture, there was there was a hell of a lot of stories, dreamtime stories. You know, a lot of people talk to them about or, or dreaming stories. Um, our old dreaming stories right across the country had values and lessons that underpin the story. What underpinned those stories were lessons around humility, lessons around love and care and respect and, and compassion and, and taking care of one another, um, you know, and, and that's 
what I do now. I, I don't only go around and talk about my story. I go around and talk about them old stories, mm-hmm. the ones that have been handed down to us for thousands of years. So that leads uh, up to the next question, because that's, that's, that's powerful stuff in itself. What, what made you do that transition then to go, right, I, I've got a message and I, I want to share these stories and go and make a difference? Because now you've been awarded some high accolades for your work in mental health. What, what prompted you to make that move? And again, that's 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 over a number of years too. So um, it, it it didn't it, it's it's how you evolve as a person. Again, you educate yourself more, and and you know I'm someone who does a stack load of reading, and I've 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 done some work around trauma recovery, and um, you know at uni and that sort of stuff. So again, I'm I'm constantly trying to educate myself to 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 not only better other people but better me um, to help me be the best version of me. Um, but it was in the very first session I started speaking back in 2014. Did, did some some lights come on for people, you know? And I and I guess what drove to that was you know when when the enemy thing was launched, you know, it was around a, a short film um, that I'm super thankful that um, the lady who who produced and put that together that that she actually encouraged me to, to, to speak about this journey because this was a secret that I'd hidden for um, many years. And I, I'm probably jumping all over the place and so forth, but um, it was on the back of that film being made public. Did a lot of people start coming up to me and saying, hey, Joe, you know what you're talking about? I go through the same. And the more people that come up to me and said, I go through the same and hearing you as a former NRL player, again, you know, these sports people that get looked at like, you know, they're invincible um, mentally, emotionally. Um, But also the week that The Enemy Within was launched, the short film and then my organisation, was the week leading into my defense of the WBF world title. So here's this guy who's just about to, to fight for a, for a, you know, a boxing title coming out saying that he's, he's had depression his entire you know, sporting career, a large part of his life, and that he tried to end his life. Now, this is back in 2014 where people didn't speak about it like they speak about it now. So it was a big deal. And living in a small town and being a profile person, I was back living in Wagga, being a profile person with sport. And, and again, it was the week of that fight. Um, people started coming up to me everywhere. And the more I started to connect with that and started to talk in, you know, schools and so forth, and the, the more I, it made me realise that there's so many people out here hurting. There's so many people that are just struggling in silence that don't have the confidence. The, you know, people were saying to me at the start, you know, that's so brave for you to talk about. And I'm like, you know what? It's, and this is no disrespect to anyone else, but I said, in my opinion, it's not brave. It's just the right thing to do. And, and, and starting to show myself and the vulnerabilities that I had 
and connected with people. And people were like, you know, if this dude can do it, then 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 maybe I can start to talk about it too. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I, then I got to a dangerous place again because I was taking on everyone's problems that they couldn't speak about for so long and I didn't know how to protect my spirit and how to protect myself mentally and emotionally and I was constantly giving 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 and you know as they say you can't give from an empty cup I ended up back inside the psych ward um you know for you know for the second time and um that's when I I I said if I'm gonna do this I've got to start to look after myself too um and you know from that i started working around schools across the country um you know the opportunity come up to go and work with kevin hines across in in the us um and i was based in atlanta for for a while over there going between the us and back here in australia um and then you know it was it was on my stint over in the us and and again that same elder that had that conversation with me uh he said to me um Who's got the highest suicide rates in the world? And I said, oh, our people do back home. And he said, well, tell me what you're doing over there. If your people are dying more than anyone back here in Australia, do you have a responsibility to them? And I said, I'm on the next plane home. Wow. I've, I've gone overseas with, you know, with my book launch and so forth like that. My priority now is around the healing of communities here in in australia and again um aboriginal communities that that are struggling and are dispossessed and uh that are below the poverty line and are doing their best to navigate through generation on top of generation of trauma that they're struggling to you know to stay afloat so it's about going out and empowering and and my direction a little bit has changed from um, going out and speaking about mental health to, to, to looking at the root cause of a lot of the mental health issues in, in Aboriginal communities is, is the generational trauma that we're born with. And I love that. It's the front line. That's, that's what I admire the most. You know, there's... I have so much respect for huge organizations and things like that. But when you know people are on the front line and they're going into the communities and there's the caseworkers that deal with people with mental health issues daily and they see it all. And there's people like yourself that are going out there and just getting amongst the communities. To me, that's just so inspirational. Well, I can't sit back and watch. I can't sit back and and try and affect change if I'm doing it behind a computer. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I got, I'm out in community and, and, you know, I'm in over, you know, 50 and 60 different communities a year, you know, 300 plus days on the road, wiping the tears out of people's faces, you know, and sitting there and, and, and giving some respect to the pain that they're going through and, and really helping them to normalize the conversation that, that is happening with them. But, but, but not only just talk about, you know, because going out to, to communities and sharing my story, although it's something that we can connect to, but I think we're at a point now where we need to share more about healing techniques because 
whilst in 2014 when no one spoke about it or very very i didn't know of anyone speaking about it um in communities it was a way to connect to people and to help them to understand their pain and to know that they weren't alone but now that we know that what we're doing is we're we're probably going out and we're sharing vicariously mm. our own pain into communities and you know, there's countless young people that that I, I, I connect with and, and they're like, you know, I want to be a mental health speaker. I've got a story. I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm stoked, you, you know, that, that you want to help people and I'm, and I'm really sorry that you've got a story, but I'm more interested in how you heal. Yeah, yeah. I'm more interested in how you can impact other people in a positive way because sharing your story again is just about sharing your pain so from day dot that i was out in communities people were saying oh it's, a, it's amazing that you're sharing your story but from day dot for me it was about sharing the techniques that helped me get well yeah from a young kid at 13 with voices inside his head telling him to die yeah. it weren't about sharing my story and my pain and what i went through it was about sharing how i learnt to manage that in those tough times that's what that's the conversation i think that we've got to change at the moment see i i, I agree wholeheartedly. one of the things that has actually come from this campaign and and don't get me wrong like i'm obviously very grateful there's a lot of public figures that's come for, forward and shared the story which has created that awareness but from it i've been asked by a lot of people to come in and do talks and I've turned every single one down because my head is exactly what you just said there. I am more than happy to go and introduce it, but we need either clinical psychologists or professionals that can then teach us how to positively yeah. maneuver our way and learn it. So you just hit So it. that was where that was where my journey was around educating myself around trauma and the impacts and how to heal trauma and that sort of stuff as well. But in the beginning. For me, yeah, it was about sharing my story, but it was also about normalizing the story and being the conduit for young people who, who don't feel confident in going to the school counselor. Yeah. Right? So it was about me normalizing that to them and saying, hey, listen, I got help. And, you know, it really helped me. Mm. So if I can get some help, I think you should too. Yeah. So for me, a long period of the time was about being the conduit between the people and the professional. Yeah. You know, that's what a lot of people don't get. I ain't going in there to, to communities just sharing my story and making everyone feel sorry for me. It ain't about that. Yeah. It's about trying to help people. And, and, and I'll 100% talk about my, my holistic journey and how I do that. So for me, it's like, you know, if you're going through a tough time, um, start to have a look at some, some, some of the behaviors in your life, start to, start to um, distance yourself from negative influences, negative behaviors, um, put the alcohol down if that's an impact on your life, clean your diet up and get out there and exercise. All right. And, you know, add some mindfulness and some meditation and do some stuff that really impacts your well-being in a positive manner. All right. And if that ain't working, then it's time to have a bigger conversation you know, with, with some people who know and study the brain and, and, and understand it, you know. So, again, 
it's about, you know, I'll 100% share the things that help me get well, but I'm not everyone else either. So what helped me might not help other people. Exactly. So I just say, these are the things that I do. These are things that I continue to do still to this day. And if it's working for me, I'll put more of it in there, you know? So, and again, it ain't about trying to beat what it is I go through. It's about just trying to manage it to keep me well in life. And and I think that's just it. There, you you just people can have so much respect for you because it's it, it's the transparency and you're so authentic with it. Like you don't hide the facts. You don't, and and that's the whole notion in normalizing the conversation, isn't it? There's nothing to be fearful in sharing your story to get help and just keep on trying. Like you say, I always say, it's like training the body, which you did, is like training the mind. What works for one person will never work for the other. So just Keep on trying. You know, I, I sat with a, a, a young group um, that, that the, and these are, these are some, some young fellows that, were, that were started a, a group around mental health awareness and, um, you know, helping, helping other young men connect um, to each other that are going through tough times. And, um, and I sat there and, and I listened to all of them and, and I said, lads, um, with respect, each of you spoke for half an hour to 45 minutes and you didn't tell me once about how you got well. You didn't tell me once about implementing positive things in your life. You just shared with me all of your pain. So is this about you helping other people or is this about you getting it off your chest? Yeah. You know, so we have to have a look at what it is that we're doing, but, but more importantly, why we're doing it. Mm-hmm. For me, again, from day one, it was always about, People connected with me. It helped them to feel good. So I want to help people feel good. So it was about trying to share, not my story, but my tips to get well, right, my wellness package to get well in community. And and I think um, maybe maybe the media, I won't say can be blamed, but the way that that everything was reported was about Joe Williams is going around sharing his story, you know, and, and that's all people got. Yeah. And sharing your story. So I've got a story too. So maybe I can share my story and, and, and then I'm going to help people. Um, you know, it, it's a little bit more intricate than that. It's about, um, again, I ask people, why do you want to do it? Do you want to do it to get it off your chest or do you want to do it to help other people? Because if you're mm-hmm. just sharing your pain, it ain't about, it ain't about them. It's about you. Yeah. Totally agree. With you. Well, I want to, I want to, Obviously, thank you. Honoured that you came on to, to chat. We've been chatting for a good hour now, mate. <laughs> good chat to hours for you. And um, after this, obviously, there's a lot of things that I've taken away that really could be implemented. Obviously, you know about the campaign and what it's, its aims have been. And it's never been about me sharing my story. That's why you'll never really see me on the campaign. Um, but yeah, some of the things that I just took away from you that just can be implemented and that sort of stuff. But what is next for yourself? Obviously, we're in isolation mode at the moment. So where can people find out more information about you? And your, obviously, your book, The Enemy Within, where can they pick it up from? I'm sitting, uh, I'm sitting actually at my desk. Uh, sorry, in my son's room. And he's got a picture of that's uh, like that, right? <laughs> there. Uh, to find the enemy within, uh, that's all available on my website and stuff like that. And you can get me at joewilliams.com.au. But, um, What's next? What's next is, is most important for me because, you know, um, 
the last 18 months has been a difficult change. I've had this sort of cloud over the top of my head that I didn't know what I was doing, where I was going, and I wanted to impact bigger and better and, you know, and broader around communities. Um, and it just come to me one day, and uh, I'm thankful that it did. And I, uh, I wrote a, a trauma recovery program that uh, I'm looking to implement into uh, into into Dubbo, and we're going to pilot in Dubbo first, out where I live. Uh, and we're still going through, you know, um, negotiations and so forth of what and where that looks like. Uh, and then obviously the isolation factor, you know, we, we're struggling with that at the moment. But um, for me, it's it's more about trauma recovery. And um, what's next for me is is about looking at, you know, that program and, and making some real change in communities. I've started doing some work with an out-of-home care organisation. Um, which is dealing with with young people with complex trauma um, that you know and, and again looking to uh, if we're going to heal behaviors we're going to heal the thing that's causing the behaviors which uh, triggers the trauma um, and you know it, it's just a really difficult time at the moment for everyone but in all honesty brother I ain't finding it that difficult because I'm someone who could stay in my house and not speak to anyone every single day of the week um and and people say well what do you mean like you've been in the public eye with professional sport for for a long time uh and now you go out and and speak to thousands of people a week what do you mean you i like my own company you know i'm never lonely because i've got three or four bloody people talking to me upstairs in my head anyway um, so for me um i'm using this time uh to be you know, to be creative and to do some more writing. And uh, I'm writing, as I said, I'm, I'm writing a, a, a chapter of a book um, which is directed at, at uh, social workers um, working with, with Aboriginal communities. Um, but also um, I said on my social media that there was three words that I want people to start to have a look at during this time of what we call this pandemic or crisis. Uh, and that's to adapt, innovate, and grow. Um, for me, I'm adapting to the situation. I'm innovating by writing new, new content, new programs. Um, you know, looking at different things, doing podcasts with people, starting my own podcast. Um, but also, and you know, when you innovate, you grow, right? Um, so, for me, it's this time of struggle, of uncertainty, um, it, isn't, it isn't new, you know, and, and it, it isn't new for me, it isn't new for a lot of Aboriginal communities because we have a hell of a lot of uncertainty in our life. Um, you know, as I said, you know, a large proportion of our communities are below the poverty line. Um, you know, so we're, many, many, many communities uh, are, are, you know, doing their best to battle as it is, you know, so this, Unfortunately, is it nothing new? You know, it's 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 a time to. I'm seeing some positives in it. It's a time to connect with family. As I said, 300 plus days on the road, I'm never home. Yeah. But yeah. the last three months, I've been home. You know, so it's it's great for me. You know, I, I I'm loving it. I'm enjoying it. And you know, the new world of connecting with people like you online. Um, being able to do things and chat with people, you know, via Zoom and, you know, virtually, that sort of stuff. Um, 
if it's the new new, I don't mind it so much because, as I said, I'm using it as an innovation um, for my next step. Stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> well, mate, I'd say total respect to you. You're doing some amazing stuff and you're helping people along the way. So, again, I appreciate you. Thank you for being a part of the podcast and, uh, and chatting, mate. Anytime, brother. And, um, you know, shoot me through the links and so forth and I'll share them around on my, on my socials as well just to, you know, to get it out there a bit more. Amazing, mate. Well, thank you. And, um, guys, you can download this on Spotify or High Art Radio. I'll also be dropping a link through the YouTube channel as well.